Eternal Kingdom is written by Michelle Roger. This book is edited by Brendan McWilliams. Sound engineered by Steve Nett of Computer Room Services. Graphic novel drawn by Tom Duncan. Music composed, performed, and recorded by Michelle Roger. Eternal Kingdom, Chapter 9 Rose blinked repetitively, trying to regain her focus on the room. The fuzzy outlines of odd shapes slowly came into focus, turning moving blobs of shadow and light into people and objects. The glass wall of her intensive care unit revealed a bustling world of nurses and doctors just outside of her door. There was an unpleasant noise coming from one side of the bed, an underlying bass of sound that was louder than the beeping of the machines or monitors above her head. She rolled over, only to find Robbie sound asleep, snoring in a chair at her bedside. The movement of rolling over made her cough, and Robbie was instantly awake. Rose tried to speak, but her throat was raw, and she winced, grabbing at her neck. Robbie stared intently at the world outside the glass window as he handed Rose a cup of ice chips. She followed his gaze to find a solitary man, unflinching and unmoving in all of the chaos of the intensive care unit. The man stared back at Robbie and Rose. He's been watching us since I brought you here. Rose sputtered, trying to speak. She managed to eke out, What happened? I woke up to check on you and found you sleeping in a pillow of blood. Since Detroit was our final destination, I brought you here. You've been in intensive care for three days while they gave you antibiotics. Robbie explained all of this while staring at the man, who was also staring back at him. I have to find a way to keep you safe while I gather up a team, and for the bloody life of me, I can't figure out how they're tracking us. Rose looked at him questioningly. Her brain was fighting the drugs and the cancer in order to catch up to the reality she had apparently slept through. She touched his arm and broke the trance with the man outside. They arrived at the chess champion's house before us. They were waiting for us, Rose. And now they know we're here and they're watching. The question is, how? The sickening realization washed over her that the man outside of her glass room was the hunter, and she was the bait. Dr. Kevin Gray enjoyed his volunteer work. It's what his late wife, Delta, would have wanted him to do. After retiring with tenure at Wayne State, they had made plans to travel to all of the places he had lectured around the world, but had never really enjoyed. Unfortunately, Delta had died before they got any farther than San Francisco. For the year that followed her funeral, Kevin lived in a bottle of one sort or another, be it their house with the large glass windows of Lathrop Village, or the vodka that numbed his heartache. Everywhere he looked, she was there, and for a brief time, her ghost became more than he could bear. He considered moving. As he gave a real estate agent the tour of the house, they went into Delta's reading room. 
It was a place Kevin had kept locked. Everything in that room was her, and the thought of going inside was, well, it was just enough to make his heart burst from his chest. Still, there was no explaining that to the agent, and so, with trembling hands, Kevin opened the door to a world of memories he had quite literally locked away for a year. He had been right. Being in her reading room had been painful, but not in the way he had expected. Instead, it was like the bitter, sweet sensation of returning home after being away for too long. Her teacup sat on the small table next to the window. Her chair still had the blanket she had learned to crochet when the children were small. What astonished Kevin most was that he had never really looked all around at her book collection. A pit formed in the bottom of his stomach as he read the titles for the first time. He first noticed the collection of physics books, all titles he had lectured on. Quietly, she had read up on whatever he was taking him away on another junket for the university. The ever-supportive wife of a professor, he never realized she was nearly as well-read on his topics as he was. Excusing himself and showing the realtor out, Kevin spent the next three months reading, taking his meals, and sleeping in Delta's room. On a hot July afternoon, while searching through her collection of farm-to-table cookbooks, an odd little book fell at his feet. It had no title. It looked like something she might have picked up at the yard sale. What he found inside was a treasure trove, and he sat in Delta's chair to read it. Her voice filled his mind as he read her neatly written journal entries. Somewhere in the small hours of morning, Kevin found himself falling in love all over again with the wife who had sat idly by as he had made a name for himself in his university. Delta had had plans for her life. The plans were small, but profoundly meaningful. With each book she had collected, 3,000 in total according to Kevin's accounts, she had planned to take them and start a library in the cancer ward of the university's research hospital. After a year and three months to the day, Kevin let himself cry, holding the words he could read, but he would never hear her say. It only took a few calls and invitations to the house to convince the board members. They helped Kevin find the funding. Money was never easy to come by, and he felt as though Delta were pulling the strings from some place far more divine than Detroit. As per her plan, Kevin visited the library each week and took stock of what titles were in, what was popular, and what needed to be delivered to those too sick to pick up their own copies. The work was satisfying, and along the way, Delta sent him to those who needed him most. Her guiding hand was ever-present. As he strolled through the bustling cancer ward, Kevin rounded the corner and found that all of the hairs on the back of his neck stood on end. He was suddenly nauseated from the overwhelming smell. He grabbed the wall to steady his step. The last time he had felt this way, no, he told himself, he dismissed the notion completely. But his mind couldn't let it go. Standing very still, he scanned the nurse's station on the floor. Kevin nearly missed him, but his eyes returned to the man entering a patient room just two doors down. Kevin's pulse raced. He checked his watch. 
the nurses were being briefed as afternoon shift handed over patient charts to the midnight shift. No one would have seen the creature enter. No one but a late-night librarian with a past run-in with a vampire. Kevin closed his eyes trying to regain control of his panic. He talked to Delta in his mind. He asked her for help. Logic told him to wait. There was nothing he could do to stop a vampire once inside the confines of a hospital room. He would wait, and he would see. As the seconds passed like hours, he listened for the monitors to beep and whistle. Did this one know how to shut down the machines before taking the life of his victim? Why would a vampire feed on a cancer ward? Surely there were more tempting and weaker targets in geriatrics or the ER. Kevin tried to shut out the memories of his own unpleasant experience with the undead. Goosebumps ran down his back, and he wrapped his arms around himself to keep himself from shivering. Movement was near the room, and Kevin stepped back into the nearest room waiting for the half-man, half-monster to leave. When he was sure the elevators had taken the vampire far away, he made his way cautiously to the patient room and peeked in. A man and woman were sitting on the bed, clearly shaken. The woman was in tears. If your friend returns, I feel you might not be so lucky to survive a second time, Kevin said sternly. I can't help you until dawn, but I'll be back for the day shift, and if you're both still here, be prepared to check out yourself. Pay with cash. Leave all of your credit cards and identification here. If you've had a visit, you want to be sure to discard any means of tracking. Do you understand? Robbie and Rose stared at Kevin incredulously. Robbie and Rose stared at Kevin incredulously and then shook their heads as if they understood. Kevin's eyes softened. It is my dearest hope to see you in the morning. Until then, I suggest you pray. Pray? What the bloody hell for? Are you some kind of Bible thumper? Robbie was defensive and stood up, ready to throw Kevin out. Kevin pulled out a crucifix that he wore around his neck. I don't have time to explain right now. Let's just say one of these saved me in a meeting quite similar to the one I imagine you just had. And it would seem to me, surrounding yourself in a room full of objects, well, that might be helpful. You may not believe in them, but your new friend most certainly does. Rose pulled off the covers as if she didn't need any further convincing. Robbie hesitated. He stared at Kevin, scrutinizing him, sizing him up as a man. There wasn't much time, and it wasn't clear who they could trust and whom they couldn't. Kevin broke the staring contest. Where are you staying? Robbie chose to answer carefully. In a hotel nearby. You've been followed. Don't go back there. Not until you've had a chance to talk to me. Robbie finally shook his head in concession. Where might I find a wheelchair, mate? Cadell was clearly irritable by the way he called for his assistant. He was hollering even before her feet made it across the threshold of the room. Have you any idea why they chose this godforsaken city? It wasn't a question she was meant to answer, and she knew it. I mean, where is the beauty? Her petite face gave the impression that her eyes were larger than they were, making her look younger and more alluring. She smiled daintily. Perhaps, sir, the real beauty is in the macabre of the city. I mean, 
Not everything that is beautiful is perfect, smooth, or delicate. She stood before him and dared graze her finger gently over his gnarled hand. Sometimes the things that are dark and decayed are the most attractive. Cadell was suddenly reminded of why, above all, he had chosen her to be by his side. One day soon, he would have to turn her. Clearly she had earned the right. He knew all too well that as soon as he gave his faithful servant her heart's desire, she would surely leave his company. Selfishly, he prolonged the inevitable. "'How did your study go, sir?' It was interesting. After observing the pair for a long time, I just can't decide if they're clever or truly mad. Introducing myself was pointless as well. Until we know who their game master is, I won't know how much influence they'll have over him. The royal human couple is truly a mystery, not so easily analyzed in one night, I'm afraid. A bell chimed. I noticed that it was ten minutes until sunrise. But, alas, there are only so many hours in a night. I've prepared your coffin, sir. The soil from home arrived yesterday, and I've prepared your place for rest. Good girl, you are a faithful and humble servant. When we return home, I think we will celebrate your turning. What do you think? Really, sir? Nothing would make me happier. Well, you make the arrangements. You've earned your place in the eternal night. I won't have my darling Maria turned into this, well, turned in this filth and decay. Your coming out will be in the splendor of Italy. And now with that, I bid you good day. Rose was doing her best to kneel in the chapel, but every part of her body was tense and on alert. She was on the cusp of breaking down and focused on breathing to help herself keep in check. Robbie, on the other hand, stood like a sentry near the door, with his back to the wall and his gaze scanning the chapel for any movement. His biceps bulged with his arms folded across his broad chest, making himself look as formidable as humanly possible. That was the problem, he thought to himself. Humanly was definitely a disadvantage at this point in the game. In the ambient lighting and candle flame, shadows became exaggerated. Each flicker of flame or unfamiliar sound made Rose look to Robbie, as if asking where they would run or how they might fight. When she considered her own defense, an epiphany, divine or neural, came to her and she slowly stood. Robbie was instantly alarmed, but Rose flashed him a wildly infectious smile. She made her way to the altar near the baptismal font, and there, just like the church of her childhood, sat a bowl of plastic vials. A small handwritten note stated, For the sick or homebound. Rose imagined that the author of the note never envisioned a pesky vampire problem in the humble hospital chapel. Nevertheless, in her heart, she knew her cause was just, if not unusual. One by one, Rose filled a dozen small vials with blessed holy water and put them into her pocket of her hospital scrubs. Robbie looked on and joined her in her smile when she returned to her seat. Bloody clever, he whispered. Soon sunlight came through the chapel windows and Robbie began to pace. He wasn't sure if they could trust Kevin. Surely the ward would notice Rose was missing from her room in all the while, 
the ability to hide was growing more and more difficult. As his patience wore threadbare, the door of the chapel cracked open and Kevin peeked in. Ready? Rose climbed into the wheelchair and Kevin, with his security badge and lanyard, walked slowly and confidently to the elevators. No one paid them any notice. Taking the service elevators to the garage, the three climbed into Kevin's car and were away quickly. The drive to Lathrop Village was calm, heading northbound, the office traffic heading in the opposite direction. Kevin settled his two guests into Delta's room and offered Rose some of his wife's clothing. When everyone was cleaned up and having coffee, Kevin decided he had waited long enough. I know you must be tired and on edge, and since I know exactly how you feel, let me answer the question that both of you must obviously be asking. I knew the man in your room to be a vampire by, well, his smell. Kevin waited a few seconds for his opening statement to sink in. As a professor, he had often opened his lectures with something to grab his audience's attention. This was no different. Think about it. It's the smell of decay and rotting things. I was introduced to that smell many years ago at the university, just next to the hospital. I was staying late grading papers in my office when that same smell permeated the entire room. It grew so strong that I felt I would be sick. I stood to open my door and run to the men's room when, from above me, the door slammed itself. I looked up, and there, on the ceiling, was something not even my nightmares could produce. One of my students, a young, brilliant man, was holding the body of a dead girl. The murder was fresh as her blood dripped down onto my scalp. His face was contorted, and I could just barely make his identity. When he spoke, I confirmed who he was. Let me say that this young man, while brilliant, gave far more credence and imagination to the field of physics than is proper. The things he expected from science kept him from being objective. I had suggested to him that term that he leave the department and study something more practical, like accounting, and when he could be more logical in his approach, I would readmit him to the physics department. Hence, this brilliant, wild visionary hovered above my head with murder literally in his hands and death across his face. I invited him to sit down. He laid the girl on my desk as if there was a chance of reviving her. Sobbing, he confessed to me that he had only recently been bitten and awoke in his undead state. He was starving and burning to feed when he awoke at sunset. Unsure of where to go and without guidance, he opened his window, letting his instincts guide him. Just as he was about to descend, a knock came on his bedroom door. His sister, Emily, had come in to check on him. The scent of her sweet blood consumed him at the moment, and he attacked and killed her within seconds. Overwhelmed with regret, he recalled the lecture I had given on time and the mathematical ability for one to move forwards and backwards according to string theory. I agreed that the theory was correct, I also knew my life was on the line in what I might say in the next few minutes that followed. Being a seasoned lecturer, I began to filibuster about dimensions, alternate earths, and the strong nuclear bond, praying, much like you two, I imagine today, for the dawn to come. Just as the sky was turning black to gray, a hint of light reflected off of the crucifix around my neck. 
my window suddenly flew open and the two of them vanished. I lived in fear of my life for two months that followed. I can only imagine the police investigation, the high profile of his wealthy family, and the news cameras that I welcomed in front of my house, waiting for my comment or interview, kept him away. A quiet knock came at the door, making Rose jump. Come in, come in. Rose, Robbie, this is Riley. She has arrived here just the other day. Riley is waiting for her father to return from winning a large chess tournament, and Riley's father and I are research partners. He won, too, Riley beamed. I thought he'd be back by now, though, her expression looking very mature and worried for a 12-year-old. Kevin laughed. Oh, you know your father. He's lost track of time, thinking about how he might have beaten his opponent faster or more gracefully. He'll be back to pick you up, I'm sure, by tonight. Now, until we hear from him, Mrs. Englewood has made some cookies. And if you're done with all of your homework, why don't you go see how many you can sneak for all of us? Riley giggled and left the study. Robbie blanched and Rose buckled, her head resting in her hands. Now, Robbie declared, it's time for us to tell you our story. But I'm going to need something stronger than a bit of coffee.